Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Author Ken Davis tells about a woman who one day looked out her front window and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of her next-door neighbor's rabbit. Now, this woman and her neighbor didn't get along very well, and so this was going to be a disaster. She immediately screamed at the German shepherd, encouraged the dog to drop the now extraordinarily dead, not just dead, but extraordinarily dead rabbit out of its mouth, and then she panicked. She didn't know what to do. And she came up with an idea. She made sure nobody was looking. She brought the rabbit inside the house. She gave the rabbit a bath. She blow-dried it. Anybody ever blow-dry a rabbit before? (laughs) She blow-dried it back to its original fluffiness. And then she combed the rabbit until the rabbit was looking somewhat presentable. And then she went back to her neighbor's house, went in the backyard, and put the rabbit back in its cage and propped it up. And then she went home. About an hour later, her neighbor came home from work, and she heard this blood-curdling scream coming from her neighbor. And so she ran outside, went into her neighbor's backyard, and in a very innocent way, she asked, what's the matter? What's going on? And her neighbor cried out, our rabbit, our rabbit! He died two weeks ago. We buried him in the backyard. And now, he's back from the dead. (laughs) Folks, I promise there's a point to this story. People in the ancient world were not foolish. They were not naive. They were just as smart as we are. They knew that dead rabbits stay dead. And they also knew that dead rabbis stay dead. And there is no question that if anybody is dead after the crucifixion, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, For those of you who are new to our church or just joining us, over the past month and a half, I've been taking our congregation through a series of sermons called 24 Hours That Changed the World. The graphic is up here on the monitor. 24 Hours That Changed the World, uh, based on a book of the same name by Adam Hamilton, who's the United Methodist pastor in the Kansas City area. In these messages, uh, we have been looking at, we have been exploring the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life. We've been digging into the Bible, we've been drawing from various disciplines like archaeology, history, geography, putting these 24 hours under a microscope, so to speak, trying to understand all that happened during these 24 hours because these events changed the world, but not only did they change the world, they continue to change human lives today. Amen? And like we said, if anybody is dead after the crucifixion, it's Jesus. There is simply no way that Jesus survives all that he endures. Jesus is arrested late Thursday evening after sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, of course, the Passover is incredibly significant for Jewish people. Jews continue to observe Passover today, as we all know. Uh, The Passover commemorates a central act of the Old Testament. God 
liberating the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and making covenant to be their sovereign God. By the time Jesus came among us 2,000 years ago, Jews have been observing Passover for at least 1,200 years, if not longer. But then during the course of this meal, Jesus changes everything when he institutes what we now call in the church Holy Communion, or some churches call it the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. In a nutshell, Jesus breaks a loaf of bread, he pours a cup of wine, and in breaking the bread and pouring the wine, he demonstrates to his disciples that so too in a few hours his body's going to be broken. His blood's going to be spilled on the cross so that all human beings, not just the Israelites, not just one people group, but all humanity might experience liberation from a different kind of slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to death. The disciples don't necessarily understand all this that Thursday evening, but nevertheless they eat. Well, Judas, one of the disciples, he had agreed about a day or two earlier to betray Jesus to the religious authorities who have it out for Jesus, want nothing more than to see Jesus dead. So Judas gets up from the table in the upper room where they were observing the Passover. He steals into the night to go find the religious leaders. Meanwhile, Jesus goes with the other 11 disciples where? Do you remember? The Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in Gethsemane that Judas brings a band of guards, uh, soldiers, to arrest Jesus. And so these temple guards seize Jesus, and they immediately bring him to the home of the high priest, where Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, also called the High Council, uh, was a council of 71. How many? 71 elders who ruled over the religious affairs of Israel. And these 71 members, not all of them, but the majority of them, determined that Jesus should die for claiming to be God's son and equating himself with the God of the universe. Now, what we have to keep in mind is that as all this was happening, Israel is an occupied territory of what empire? The Roman Empire. And Rome did not allow Jewish people to carry out executions. Yes, Rome allowed Jewish people to practice their faith, but not to carry out executions. Capital punishment was a Roman prerogative. So recognizing this, the religious leaders blindfold Jesus, they spit on him, they slap him, strike him, and then early Friday morning, what we call Good Friday, they bring Jesus to the Roman governor of Judea. What was his name? Pontius Pilate. And even though Pilate is sympathetic to Jesus, doesn't find any fault with Jesus, he knows that the religious leaders have brought Jesus out of envy, he authorizes the crucifixion as a way of keeping the peace because the crowd at this point is calling for Jesus' blood. So Pilate orders Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, not just a whip, a lead-tipped whip, and then the entire cohort now, folks, a Roman cohort was made up of anywhere from 300 to 600 soldiers. Wrap your brain around that figure. 300 to 600 soldiers. Probably all the soldiers stationed at the Antonio Fortress, Pilate's headquarters. These soldiers come out, and they mercilessly beat Jesus. They put the crown of thorns on his head. And then they lead him up the hill of Golgotha, where criminals would be crucified. And as we can state, Jesus is forced to carry his own cross I read somewhere this week that the cross beam that he was forced to carry, it would have weighed about 70 pounds. And in fact, Jesus isn't able to do it himself. They have to enlist a passerby to help, a man named Simon of Cyrene. And even though crucifixions sometimes took days to complete, 
because of the intensity of the violence to which he is subject beforehand, Jesus dies within how many hours? Six hours. He's on the cross from 9 a.m. until 3 in the afternoon. And just to ensure that he's dead, John, one of the gospel writers, tells us that the Romans drive a spear through Jesus as blood and water flow. If anybody's dead, it's Jesus. There is no way that he survives. And yet, the reason we are here this morning, the reason we are gathered online, is we have been told, haven't we, that the story doesn't stop here. Uh, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. Do you know what the four Gospels are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The four Gospels bear witness to the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They document the story of Jesus. Well, in this sermon series, we've been looking at some of the other Gospels, but mainly we've been drawing from the Gospel of Mark, uh, what scholars believe was the first Gospel written, written sometime around 65 AD. Well, this is what Mark says happens once Jesus is pronounced dead. This is from Mark 15 uh, and also Mark 16. This all happened, that would be the death of Jesus and the events surrounding it, on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council. This is the Sanhedrin, the council that we talked about that condemned Jesus to death. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. Again, Crucifixion sometimes took days to complete, but Jesus dies within six hours because of all that he endured beforehand. So Pilate is surprised. So he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way there, uh, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone, because they were too frightened. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say in response, thanks be to God. Jesus dies, as we said, at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. Now, of course, the Sabbath was going to begin at sunset in a few hours. Because in Judaism, and this is really important to recognize, in Judaism, the day always ends and begins at sunset instead of sunrise. That's why when you read the story of creation in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, what does the writer say? 
He says there was evening and there was morning the first day of creation. There was evening and there was morning the second day of creation. There was evening and there was morning the third day of creation. Notice the writer doesn't say there was morning and then there was evening. He flips it around. He says there was evening and there was morning because in Judaism, the day always ends and begins at sunset instead of sunrise. The idea is even as you and I sleep and rest, God is doing something. God is up to something. And God was up to something during this period of tremendous darkness. Jewish regulation did not permit burial on the Sabbath because burial was considered to be a form of work. And of course, the Ten Commandments say, don't work on the Sabbath. So there's a very short window of time, probably just a few hours, in which to bury Jesus. Now, the disciples are all gone, with the exception of John, uh, the one who wrote the last gospel, the Gospel of John. But for the most part, the disciples are gone. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's poor. She doesn't have any money, financial resources. But there is a wealthy man, Mark tells us, named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this is not Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. This is a different Joseph. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the high council, disagrees with the council's decision, takes a risk, goes to Pilate, and asks for Jesus' body. Now, ordinarily, and we talked about this last week, victims of crucifixion were not buried. Instead, their body was typically left up on the cross. Or if it was taken down, it was tossed on the ground like garbage for animals to come and devour it. Pilate, though, makes an exception, allows Jesus to be buried. And so Joseph takes the body, puts it in a tomb carved out of the rock, a large stone is put in place to seal the entrance. Uh, Mark doesn't give us this detail, but Matthew tells us in his gospel, I believe it's Matthew, he says that Pilate orders Roman soldiers to stand guard, blocking against intruders. If anybody's dead, it's Jesus. The Lord of life, the creator of life, has suffered tremendously and fully entered death. Think about this. Jesus fully entered the reality that many people fear most. Do you know what the top fears of human beings are? The top fears of human beings? Well, one of the top fears is public speaking, which we preachers call job security. <laughs> Another top fear is death. In fact, I was doing some reading this week, and sometimes I have too much fun as I'm working on messages, but I was doing some reading this week. We have billionaires, billionaires with a B. We have billionaires right now, not just in this nation, but around the world, literally pouring hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of their own money into research designed to stop the aging process, or at least slow down the aging process, because you can't really stop it, and do whatever we can to avoid death. You ever heard of Google before? The famous online search engine? Well, 10 years ago, 2013, Google started a subsidiary organization called Calico. C-A-L-I-C-O, Calico. And the chief goal of Calico, according to Google, is to cure death. This was the cover of Time Magazine, I believe this was September of 2013, uh, just before Google launched this organization, Calico. 
recognizing our own mortality as human beings, what many of us try to do is we try to work very hard here on earth to create a legacy, don't we? That will last beyond our death. But perhaps the great philosopher Woody Allen (laughs) speaks for a lot of people when he says this. This is a quote from Woody Allen. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I'm going to achieve it how? By not dying. What is it about death that makes us so fearful? Why do we do whatever we can to avoid it? Why do we not want to think about it? Put it out of our mind. I think it's because we realize deep down in the depth of who we are. Death is wrong, isn't it? Death is wrong. Even if we were to die at a very old age after living a healthy, satisfying, rich life, we long for something more, don't we? We crave something deeper. And this is really no surprise because listen to what Solomon says in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted what? Say that word again. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. You see, folks, a huge part of the reason that we cannot tolerate or stomach the idea of death is that the seed of eternity has been planted in our heart by the Creator Himself. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is, what your politics are, what your belief system is, where you find yourself in the religious spectrum. If you're a Christian, not a Christian. If you're religious, not religious. All of us long for eternity. Let's be real and honest. We all do. God who made us knows that. God who made us recognizes that. And that's why it's important to point out death was never a part of God's plan. It was never a part of God's plan. When God spoke this universe into being, created us as human beings in his image, God's plan for us and desire for us from the very beginning was to exist with him and each other forever in a perfect love relationship. And yet through our rebellion, your rebellion, my rebellion, the rebellion of all human beings that we see represented in one of the opening stories of the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve, we human beings chose a different path, we thwarted God's plan, and as a result of that action, sin came into this world. Like an alien force, it just came in, stormed in, and along with sin came death, disrupting, dismantling all that God intended. Here's the good news of Easter. Here's what gets me excited. Here's what wakes me up every morning. Here's the reason I chose to be a pastor, because I believe this deep down in the depth of who I am. In Jesus, God did not allow death to have the last word. God did not allow death to have the last word. Instead, in Jesus, God took death head on. Uh, This is an imperfect analogy, like all analogies are when it comes to talking about God. But it's almost as if at the cross, what Jesus did, he entered a boxing arena. Do we have any boxing fans in in worship today? Okay, no boxing fans at the last service either. Okay, we got a few. It's almost as if Jesus entered a boxing arena with an opponent even more powerful than Muhammad Ali. 
or Evander Holyfield or Mike Tyson, one of the great boxers, the opponent was death itself, the thing that terrifies us and scares us. And this opponent, death, gave its worst blows to Jesus as we talked about from beginning to end. And at first, it seemed as if Jesus had lost. He was executed. He was down for the count. But just when death was getting ready to receive applause from the audience of hell and rising victoriously from the grave on Easter Sunday, Jesus gave the final blow, the full knockout. Evil and sin and death were defeated once and for all. Death's funeral happened on Easter Sunday when the Son of God was raised to new life. This life to which the women later on come to bear witness. Easter marks the end to death. Now, of course, that begs the question. Maybe some of you are wondering it right now. All right, Chris. If Easter marks the end to death, if death's funeral happened 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday, why do people still die? Why do we see such devastation and chaos in this world? Well, folks, the simple answer is we won't know the culmination of this victory until Jesus returns one day in the future. But here's the deal. In the meantime, we don't lose hope. We don't cave into despair. We have hope that because Jesus was raised one day, so too we will be raised, and everything in this universe, and when I say everything, I mean everything, everything in this universe will be restored. And this hope that we have, it's not just for the future. Yes, it's for the future, but it's not just for the future. It's not just a by and by. It invades our present. We respond to God's invitation to new life in Jesus Christ, and we interpret the world as it exists now through the lens of resurrection. Recognizing that the brokenness we see all around us, the suffering we see all around us, the despair we see all around us doesn't have the last word, does it? God has done something. The God of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ, and now he invites us by his grace to partner with him, to join with him, to serve as agents in his kingdom until all that he has accomplished is fully realized. You know what I love most about this Easter account that we just read in Mark's gospel? What I love most about it this story doesn't have a proper ending. Did you catch that? Did you notice that? Listen again to what it says here, verse 8, chapter 16. It says, The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. That's it. Scholars agree that this is the original ending to Mark's gospel. Nothing about the road to Emmaus, that's in Luke. Nothing about uh, Jesus' conversation with Thomas or Peter, that's in the Gospel of John. These women are just fleeing from the tomb. I think there's a reason for all this. Part of what Mark is saying to you and me as the reader, hey, listen, this story is still going on. This story is still happening. It continues even out today through Jesus' followers, those who have given their lives over to God, choosing to put their hope and trust in the God of Easter. Here's my question for you. 
the question I want to leave you with. Have you put your hope in the God of Easter? Have you put your trust in the God of Easter? Or instead, is your response to all this, this whole celebration, all that we're talking about today, eh, that's nothing more than wishful thinking, pie-in-the-sky theology. I mean, come on, let's be real. This world as we see it right now, that's the only reality there is. If that's where you find yourself this morning, let me ask you this. What if you're wrong? What if this is not the only reality there is? What if, what if there's another reality, a better reality, that is only accessible by faith and hope? A reality that is more real, more potent than anything that you could possibly imagine. In his book, Our Greatest Gift, spiritual writer Henry Nouwen tells a parable of faith and hope. He tells the reader, you and me, to imagine twins, a brother and sister, talking to each other in their mother's womb. I didn't just simply choose the story because we have twins, a brother and sister, but we do so happen to have twins. But he asked the reader to imagine twins, a brother and sister, talking to each other in their mother's womb. This is the conversation that unfolds. The sister said to the brother, I believe that there is life after birth. Her brother protested vehemently, no, no, this is all there is. This is a dark and cozy place, and we have nothing else to do but to cling to the cord that feeds us. The little girl insisted, there must be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light where there is freedom to move. Still, she could not convince her twin brother. After some silence, the sister said hesitantly, I have something else to say, and I'm afraid you won't believe that either, but I think that there's a mother. Her brother became furious. A mother, he shouted? What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother, and neither have you. Who put that idea in your head? As I told you, this place is all we have. Why do you always want more? This is not such a bad place after all. We have all we need, so let's be content. The sister was quite overwhelmed by her brother's response and for a while didn't dare say anything more. But she couldn't let go of her thoughts and since she had only her twin brother to speak to, she finally said, don't you feel these squeezes every once in a while? They're quite unpleasant and sometimes even painful. Yes, he answered. What's special about that? Well, the sister said, I think that these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place, much more beautiful than this where we will see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? The brother didn't answer. He was fed up with the foolish talk of his sister and felt that the best thing would be simply to ignore her and hope that she would leave him alone. Which one of these children are you? Are you the one that says the tomb's not empty? This world as I see it right now is all there is. And one day our lives here on earth go out like candles on a birthday cake. Or instead, 
are you the one who says, God who has made it, who has made me for eternity, has defeated death and acted for this universe in Jesus Christ? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I remember when I was 16 years old, after struggling with doubt, questions, skepticism, cynicism, I came to realize that truth. You have acted for this world in Jesus Christ. You have defeated death. This is monumental. This has eternal consequences. God, I pray that if there's anybody this morning who's on the edge of committing themselves to you, that your Holy Spirit would inspire that person to say, yes, Jesus, I commit myself to you, even as you have committed yourself to me. You are my Lord, you are my Savior, the one who has come to rescue me and forgive me of my sin. Receive me. Have the relationship with me for which I was designed. For those of us who have already made that commitment this morning, we recognize just how easy it is to stray away and to forget the centerpiece of the resurrection. So God, we recommit ourselves to you. Continue to move in us by the power of your spirit so that you might use us in your kingdom, so that we might partner with you in the restoration of this cosmos, and so that we might proclaim this good news that Jesus Christ is raised to new life. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.